Do markets need capitalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Gary Chartier. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. And today, also a Marxist anarchist one. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Gary Chartier. Gary is Distinguished Professor of Law and Business Ethics and Associate Dean of the Tom and Vi Zappara School of Business at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. He received a BA in History and Political Science from La Sierra University, and he went on to explore ethics, the philosophy of religion, theology, Christian origins, and political philosophy at the University of Cambridge, from which he earned his PhD. He graduated later with a JD from UCLA, where he studied legal philosophy and public law. Among other things, he is the author, editor, or co-editor of 10 books, including Public Practice, Private Law, Anarchy and Legal Order, The Conscience of an Anarchist, Liberty and Class, Social Class in the Classical Liberal and Libertarian Tradition, and Markets Not Capitalism, the last of which actually will certainly inform the flavor of our conversation today. Gary, welcome to The Curious Task. Pleasure to be here, Alex. It's great to have you on. So Gary, we frame each of our episodes around a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our main question today is, do markets need capitalism? And that's really a fun and great way for us to explore uh, market anarchism as well as some aspects of left libertarianism. And I think the best place to start is actually where you start in a lot of essays I've written, uh, I, I've, I've read from you, which is clearing up terminology. So we can do that, then we'll dive in further. So let's start with one of the most obvious one. People tend to use a variety of ideas, you know, interchangeably and a lot of terms interchangeably. So let's sort them out. When we're talking today about markets, what do you mean by that? So we can use markets, I think, in a broad sense or in a narrow sense. In the broad sense, um, I think we can talk about markets as spaces for consensual activity. Uh, in the narrow sense, we can talk about markets as environments in which consensual exchange in particular takes place. So in the narrow sense, markets are commercial, but we can sometimes use the word markets even more broadly to refer to uh, just broad spaces in which people interact voluntarily. And then on the other hand, what do we mean by capitalism? in this sense, in the context of this conversation, how do we distinguish that from markets? Well, so that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, what's complicated is that there are, uh, you know, multiple meanings, uh, at one point in, uh, my 2012 book, Anarchy and Legal Order, I try to tease out five different meanings of the term. Um, you know, we don't get very far, I think, if we try to argue about what, as it were, the right meaning of a word is. Um, clearly, there are lots of different ways in which people use words, and the important thing uh, seems to me is to be attentive to those differences. Um, so we might think about uh, the following uh, varying uh, meanings that people might use for capitalism. So first of all, we might think about uh, capitalism as a label just for an economic system that involves uh, kind of robust property rights and free exchange. And this is the way that some people who say they're strongly in favor of capitalism uh, define the term. Um, then you might think about capitalism as a term for an economic system that's marked by what we might call symbiosis between big business and government. 
Uh, so then we might think an economic system that features uh, social dominance by big business, uh, by the, uh, the people at the top of the heap in the world of big business. Um, then uh, a further complication, maybe we mean uh, just the economic system we have now. Uh, and uh, that's often uh, the way the term gets used. Uh, and then finally, uh, somebody might mean by capitalism, a social system in which what motivates everybody is the quest for money. Uh, and so it's a, a kind of narrowly commercial uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of approach to life. So capitalism can mean any of those things. It clearly does mean those things to different people in different contexts. And so, uh, again, I don't think that there's any uh, value in beating up someone uh, over that person's use of a word. Uh, I think it's just important to make sure that we know how we're using terms. And I think what's complicated, uh, what makes capitalism a term that I think we, we should avoid uh, using for anything that uh, those of us in the liberal tradition are in favor of, is this very, very common usage uh, to refer to the system we've got now, which is certainly not one that's marked by anything like uh, you know, real protections for uh, voluntary exchange and robust property rights and so forth. Uh, instead, it seems to me, it looks a bit more like uh, the models that uh, get labeled uh, capitalism, but that have to do with, you know, symbiosis between big business and government uh, that have to do with the social dominance by big business. And so we run into a problem consistently, uh, and uh, my uh, uh, very uh, insightful friend Roderick Long has made this point a number of different ways over the years. Uh, we run into a problem because we, we have a kind of nonsensical uh, term, an anti-concept uh, uh, that for many people uh, seems to mean something like, you know, to combine those meetings. And so to mean something like, you know, the system of robust property rights and protections for voluntary exchange that we have now, when in fact, right. of course, that's not at all what we have. So uh, that's why I think I'd prefer to, to uh, uh, avoid using the term for anything that we're, uh, that we're in favor of as, uh, as people in the liberal tradition. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and some listening to that might argue, and, and I've heard this thrown out there a lot too, they might say, oh, well, well that, I understand what you're saying, Gary, but you don't mean capitalism then. You mean crony capitalism or corporatist capitalism or something with a dash attached to capitalism. You don't mean capitalism itself. But, but what I'm hearing as you teased out the answers is based on the fact that we're even getting into that kind of conversation. As you said, we can argue about the meaning of words or the right meaning quote, but you're saying the fact that so many people have all these different definitions there's in your essays, as you said, capitalism one, capitalism two, capitalism three, four, and five, and so on. You're, you're saying that's the problem in of itself. So am I hearing correctly that the actual idea of hanging on to this world word again is something you just say, you know what, it, it's, it's, not, it's not as productive as some might think it is. Uh, it's not at all. And, uh, and I think too often it sends the message to 
to people, and we can talk a bit more about this, but it sends the message to people who are in various ways uh, uncomfortable with the status quo that those of us in the liberal tradition are fans of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And it makes us appear as if we're siding with the existing dominant forces in the society. And even though uh, I think uh, there is a very long uh, tradition uh, within uh, liberalism that, you know, in some ways uh, can be traced as far back as uh, as Adam Smith is certainly evident in the work of people like Charles-Claude and Charles Dunoyer that's radically critical of the status quo. Nonetheless, when you when you say I'm pro-capitalist, um, very often people hear you as saying, uh, I'm in favor of, you know, pretty much the way things are with some tinkering at the edges. And, uh, and I think that really inhibits our ability to make the case for freedom in a way that other people will hear and understand and appreciate. Right. And conversely, some people had another meaning to the term, just use the, the term as a catch-all to say, like, everything that's bad with the current system, too. So there's right. yet another right. meaning right. that, you know, someone says it's it's because of capitalism, we have X bad outcome. Again, right, whether right. or not that's true. I mean, again, there's another capitalism seven, I guess, to throw in there, right? That, that causes the same problem, I guess, right? Uh, absolutely. That, that once you use capitalism as a label for the system we've got now, then obviously, if you think the system we've got now is deeply flawed, uh, then capitalism is going to be a term of abuse. Right, exactly. And in, in reference to everything we're talking about, then do you it seems as especially like, uh, you know, in some of the essays you've written and, and where you're coming from that, um, this is where we step a little further and from the neutral part to the actual proactive part, I think that you actually think that it's not a bad thing to, for someone of the liberal tradition or the left libertarian, which we'll define in a second, the market anarchist tradition to basically say, Hey, like we're in fact anti-capitalist. So when we, when we say that, and I think you have an essay titled and, uh, you know, uh, people should actually embrace anti-capitalism. So when we say that, uh, what sort of meaning of capitalism do you have in mind there? And in the broader sense? Yeah. So I think, um, I think what I have in mind there, I think I'd be more inclined now to say we'd be safer just to avoid the term and to make clear that we're not endorsing the term. But mm. uh, when we're dealing with, when we're communicating with people for whom capitalism means the system we've got now, or when it means symbiosis between big business and government or social dominance by big business, when it means any of those things, I think we should enthusiastically say we're opposed to that. Mm. And uh, we can uh, can certainly build bridges with folks who are unhappy uh, with uh, any of those things uh, in a way that uh, you know would be difficult if we kept insisting that we wanted to hang on to the word capitalism by emphasizing our opposition to those things and our recognition that capitalism can mean any of those things uh, and that we're not in favor of any of them. Uh, I think we make uh, we make it easier sometimes to connect with folks who uh, you know may not see. Uh, may not see the world in just the way we do, but who are going to be more open to having a conversation with us about the shape uh, of the world and the shape the world might take if we're able to acknowledge uh, those concerns uh, right. about what they think they, they mean when they, when they use the word capitalism. Right, absolutely. And moving on to another point here, I swear two, two more definitional pillars to the conversation that will dive deeper into the context. But I really think it's important to set all this up before we get into other things, too. So so we've talked about capitalism. We talked about markets. Uh, now I want to talk about, OK, so then when we put what you mean by uh, markets and distinguishing it from capitalism and, and so on and so forth and the different meanings of capitalism, when you say market anarchism, what do we mean by that? 
So anarchism, obviously, in the broadest sense, is opposition to rulers, right? So we have arche, uh, which shows up in words like monarchy, uh, ruled by one, uh, and so forth. And so anarchism is opposition to rulers. Uh, but I think what we find is that people who are opposed to rulers uh, then go on to explore different ways of thinking about how economic life might be tied up with rule, uh, with rulership. And so we've got, um, you know, some uh, folks who are, it seems to me, authentically and enthusiastically anarchist um, who think that markets are great things, that the the very uh, affirmation of consent uh, that uh, ought to be uh, central to to anarchism is at the same time uh, central to, uh, to market freedom. And so we ought to see the two is very much aligned. And then you've got other folks. Uh, who worry that in some way uh, uh, markets and robust property rights are tied up with uh, a kind of social dominance that they're that they're very uh, that they're very concerned about. And so, in talking about market anarchism, what I want to emphasize is that uh, indeed uh, markets properly understood and anarchism properly understood can be seen as. Uh, uh, happily aligned rather than as uh, I think for, for some anarchists, uh, very much intention. Right. Exactly. And, and how do we then, um, bring the, the idea of this, this makes a lot of sense for our listeners say, especially in the North American scene, but how, how do we bring in this idea of like left libertarianism then? Does it, does it overlap with market anarchism? Does it fully interchange? How do you, how do you see that fitting into everything we've discussed as well? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think it inter- I don't think it overlaps perfectly. That is to say, I think one can certainly be a left libertarian who's not an anarchist uh, and a market anarchist, uh, you know, who's not a left libertarian. Um, I take left libertarianism to be a view which simultaneously uh, fully embraces uh, a robust libertarian commitment to property rights and voluntary exchange and individualism and individual liberty, and at the same time uh, takes on board with great enthusiasm what I uh, regard as central uh, commitments of at least a certain kind of of leftism, what I sort of associate, I think, with the the new left of the 60s, uh, commitments uh, to uh, challenging uh, exclusion, subordination, uh, deprivation, and war. Uh, those are very uh, uh, broad, uh, obviously, kinds of, uh, kinds of labels. But the idea is that you can want an inclusive community, a uh, community in which uh, people aren't, uh, as it were, pushed around by others, a community in which uh, economic uh, security is fostered, a community in which violence is minimized, uh, the kinds of things that uh, I think uh, very often motivated folks in the new left as they pushed back against the kind of corporate liberalism, as uh, the term is often used, of uh, the post-war American consensus. Uh, you can affirm uh, those uh, concerns that we associate with the new left and at the same time uh, embrace uh, robust libertarianism. So that's what I mean when, when I talk about left libertarianism. So, you know, you can imagine someone who takes that view, but who thinks that uh, we need a certain kind of state apparatus to protect us from violence or whatever. Uh, it's not, uh, there's no necessary entailment 
uh, from uh, left libertarianism, as I understand it, to anarchism, unless you think there's an entailment from libertarianism in general to anarchism. But I right. certainly don't think there's an entailment from specifically left libertarianism to anarchism. And in turn, we know that there are folks who I think mistakenly, but I but but I think quite sincerely, uh, think that anarchism uh, is a good thing, that markets are good things, but who value uh, certain kinds of social hierarchies and other arrangements that I think uh, folks on the left might find uh, might find problematic, would find problematic. And so again, I don't think uh, you can get from. Uh, market anarchism understood in a pretty broad sense uh, to left libertarianism, again, at least a lot without a lot of extra work. So I'd want to see the two as as clearly related. Um, I think almost all the market, almost all the left libertarians I know are market anarchists. Uh, but I certainly don't suppose that uh, they overlap perfectly. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And something you're saying there towards the end actually links perfectly to another thing I want to push a little more into. So when, when we distinguish, like, I, I, I maybe I should take a, take a step back, actually, and say that, yeah. you know, someone who is maybe calls themselves a, a libertarian full stop or someone that might actually you know, help themselves to the definition of a right libertarian might say, Gary, at a high level, everything you're saying sounds like everything I believe as, as a, as a libertarian full stop or as a right libertarian or whatever yeah. that specifically means. So, um, is it the thing towards the end there that you're talking about that you think is the crucial difference that at the end of the day, although people might, for example, agree on a minimal state and so on and so forth and a certain degree of civil liberties and, and be very strong on that front, that it really comes down to then the further discussion of things like social hierarchies and economic hierarchies that distinguishes the right libertarian from the left libertarian. Yeah. So again, I think these, these values that I would associate uh, certainly with, with the new left um would include uh, things like a discomfort uh, with uh, with social hierarchies, especially with ones that are uh, that are involuntary. But I think there would be some you know some concern about the background conditions that might lead to even voluntary ones. Um, they would the left libertarian concerns that I have in mind would also include things like um, you know social exclusion and inclusion of of a sort that might be relevant, for instance, to uh, um, uh, issues of racial justice and uh, to, um, uh, you know, to gender justice, uh, to to inclusiveness with regard to, uh, uh, you know, a whole range of, of previously marginalized uh, sets of, of people in our society. And I think, um, you know, We'll probably come back to this from from other uh, uh, other angles because it sounds like you've pre- prepared very well for this, and you probably thought about this cluster of issues. But one thing that I notice a great deal in conversations with with some sorts of libertarians is a failure to distinguish between the claim so and so has a right to do such and such, and all things considered it's right for so-and-so to do such and such. Right. Right. And and, uh, so that we ought to, I think, thoroughly um, uh, commit ourselves to protecting people's freedoms to do various things that we also have good reason to object to. And I think people on both the right and the left often have difficulty making that distinction. It's uh, something that I, uh, I notice in discussions of all kinds 
uh, and I get, I guess, a little frustrated by because I think it's so crucial to recognize the distinction between what I can force you to do and what it might really make sense for you to do. Um, and so paternalists of all sorts often like to say that if it makes sense for you to do such and such, then why shouldn't I be able to uh, uh, to bully you into doing such with force or the threat of force and so forth? And I want to really resist that. And this comes up in this context, I think, because you have people who uh, will often say, well, you know, I should certainly have the right to, let us say, for instance, decline to transact with people uh, on the basis of ethnicity or something like that or nationality. And I want to say, well, I don't want to put a gun to your head and make you do that. But don't you see why there are problems with that? And why do you assume that because you should have the right to do it, therefore, there's no moral criticism of your position that's possible? You know, you, you know, if you've embraced a kind of foolish bigotry, you have false beliefs about people, about the superiority of ethnic groups or the undesirability of interactions across ethnic groups. I can object to those, even if I don't think you should be forced to abandon them. And I think people don't catch that distinction. And uh, so that's... uh, Anyway, I mean, I think we can come back to that, but I feel like that it's really important to see that in this connection, that people often drop the distinction and just assume, if I have the right to do X, then it must be okay for me to do X. And that is exactly the mistake that the paternalists also make. So the paternalists make it on the one hand, you know, uh, because because it's uh, not right for you to do it, therefore we should have the right to make you not do it. And then you have, on the other hand, a sort of minimalist or brutalist libertarian who says, because I should have the right to do it. Therefore, it's right for me to do it. I just don't think either of those captures uh, everything we'd want to say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the next question I'm going to ask might sound like it's it's a different gear, but I think might connect very nicely to the distinction you're drawing because what I wanted to get into was, and this is specifically actually a question I put in here, actually, because I've seen this happen a lot. Uh, Someone coming to these terms and to these these ideas actually as sort of like a new student, if you will, of all of them and trying to unconfuse everything and think of the terminologies. And you say, hey, we got market anarchist on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you can be presented information from I guess what we can safely call a school of thought and sort of a tradition, especially in the United States, of what has gone off to be called anarcho-capitalism. So I would mm-hmm. like you to, to hear your thoughts on that and, and 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 the distinction. I mean, I know there's actually a, a very interesting discussion to be had about uh, where Rothbard, Murray Rothbard sits in this you know discussion decades on, uh, earlier and then a few decades later where that went. So I really would like to hear your thoughts on that, especially from the perspective of someone coming to you and saying, Hey, you know, no, hey, Gary, like market anarchism, isn't that just interchangeable anarcho-capitalism, right? Yeah, and, you know, so one possibility, of course, is that somebody who uses an expression like anarcho-capitalism really is just talking about market anarchism and is using unhelpfully this this term capitalism that I want to, if possible, uh, uh, you know, encourage folks to stop employing. Um, another possibility is that somebody's using the term anarcho-capitalism to capture support for markets and opposition to the state, but also at the same time uh, to embrace uh, other social features, uh, other, you know, other features of social interaction that might well, uh, from my perspective, be problematic. Uh, so that somebody, you know, I think 
the the smart, thoughtful person who likes the label anarcho-capitalist might well be very clear on the distinction that you and I were just talking about and might not at all be uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, there are things that uh, social institutions ought to do without violence so that it would never be okay for um in institutions that do deploy violence uh, to to do. Um, so I think somebody can be an anarcho-capitalist and be perfectly clear on that, but I do think that there are some people who use the label in a way that does suggest that the only kind of rule they're unhappy with is rule that directly involves the aggressive use of force. And as long as something doesn't involve that, then uh, uh, you know, then in general, they're they're happy with it. Uh, people don't stick with that. Uh, they're they're not consistent in embracing that idea, even if that's uh, I think sometimes their official view. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I think it's been really fascinating to see um, people switch sides uh, when it comes to uh, kind of intra-libertarian debates about uh, about big tech. Right. So that uh, because of the, I think, not unreasonable perception that, uh, you know, big tech is often you know very much aligned with the political establishment and doesn't want to get in trouble with the political establishment and tends as a result to be um, often quite willing to contribute directly or indirectly to suppressing uh, dissenting views. Um, what's fascinating for me is seeing. Uh, some folks who might think of themselves as right libertarians or ANCAPs um, announcing that they're really concerned about the interrelationship between the state and these bodies. And they're actually willing sometimes, it seems to me, to see the state, uh, you know, embrace restraints on on big tech that they normally wouldn't be happy to see the state uh, imposing on uh, on uh, corporations at all. And by contrast, I think you'll sometimes, depending on the issues in question, you'll see some folks who are left libertarians suddenly deciding that, uh, well, look, it's, it's perfectly okay for a big tech tech to do whatever it is it's doing here. The state isn't making that happen. And I, I, it feels to me as if uh, we all need, we, we need a lot more nuance in these discussions, a lot more sensitivity uh, to the, uh, the complexities involved. And we ought to be able to consistently maintain on both sides of uh, the, these issues, whether we're talking about uh, uh, big tech or, or other uh, uh, you know, large uh, corporate formations. We ought to be able simultaneously to say um, we can distinguish between cases when the state really is either undergirding or actively commanding certain behaviors and uh, cases in which even when that's not the case, we can be critical uh, in one way or another. Um you know, I have very little time for all of the bashing, let's say, of, uh, of uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram or even Twitter. I despise Twitter, but I'm perfectly happy for people to do what they do on Twitter. But I think despite not valuing that kind of bashing, I think it's totally OK for me to say, you know, I think, uh, let's say, in suppressing a certain kind of post, uh, Facebook's really acted badly here. Uh, surely I can say that and at the same time not suppose that I want the state to craft or, and implement a solution to that problem. Uh, I feel like all sorts of libertarians um, skate past that distinction too mm. quickly when their own uh, oxen are being gored. Right. Um, 
makes a lot of sense. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break because we're right about that time now. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Gary Chartier today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Alessandro Fiorello, Amy Willis, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Gary Chardier today. So, Gary, I think the first half was great. We covered some different concepts, made some important distinctions, I think, and uh, sorted through, you know, different kinds of ways people refer to capitalism, discussed market anarchism, left libertarianism, and so on. Um, now I'd like to get away from more of the definitional part and exploring the concepts themselves and get your thoughts on how, you know, you think of some of the things we're seeing in the world right now. And obviously through that, we're, we're applying all the principles we just talked about. So I want to start with this one. In reference to everything we talked about, so many seem to have the impression that the economies we have today, specifically like places in the U.S. and Canada, are, you know, largely free, but distorted in some places by, you know, government intervention. So we should rein that back, especially if they're, a, a, you know, self-proclaimed capitalists, for instance, they might say something like that. And as I said, even those who identify as libertarian or classical liberal tend to point out a few pet areas where this or that program being eliminated might solve a problem and so on or so forth, or this or that area, if we just rein back in the government, um, you know, we end up clearing out the area where the market can actually do its thing. What what do you say to this sentiment overall, that things are like, you know, largely free, and the quote capitalism in the sense that we have of the system today is 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 could do pretty well, but you know the government's just meddling in some places. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, the issue is hugely complex, and uh, you know it would be, uh, I suppose, uh, fun to uh, uh, you know just announce in a loud voice that. Uh, everything is so profoundly distorted that uh, uh, that uh, that view is just deeply foolish and everything needs to be torn up branch, branch and root and, and so forth. I, it feels to me as if that's probably a, uh, you know, kind of naive response, uh, because really we're talking about quite detailed uh, historical and economic analysis that uh, is required to tease out the different ways in which um, uh, state intervention uh, turns out to be profoundly distortive. Um, You know, for instance, it seems to me, um, you know, we think about all the ways in which medical care uh, is rendered inaccessible uh, or costly because of a whole set of interlocking, overlapping, mutually reinforcing uh, uh, interventions that uh, protect the privileges of established groups in a whole range of areas from, uh, you know, healthcare providers to uh, medical device creators to pharmaceutical companies and so forth. And all of these things kind of work together uh, in quite complex and, as uh, Chris Shabar would say, dialectical ways. Um, and so we could, we could try to dive in and talk about uh, those interlocking problems. Um, What I guess I want to emphasize is that what I think is problematic about the way of thinking and talking and speaking that you've uh, identified is not 
you know, that in any particular case, um, the proponents of that approach are, are missing important interventions. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that, I guess I'd say the risk of talking that way is that we become unduly complacent about the ways in which existing institutions really do get in the way of what I think is really the most important thing about any truly radically liberal society, um, which is experimentation, right? So I think um, the the real uh, driver of ongoing change, both economic uh, and also cultural and social and so forth, in uh, uh, in a liberal order, it seems to me, is that the absence of coercive top-down control leaves people free to experiment. And so that I, I worry that if we say things are largely okay, but we just need, need some, some tweaking at the margins. It's not because in any particular case, there's some big uh, uh, intervention that uh, somebody's ignoring. Maybe that is true. Maybe it's not. Um, you know, I think intellectual property often, for instance, plays that role. And people miss the degree to which that can be profoundly restrictive mm-hmm. and plays, plays uh, important roles in a whole range of restrictive contexts. But I think what I'm what I want to emphasize instead of kind of getting into the weeds with regard to particular uh, historical or economic claims about this or that intervention is to say that if we just want to tinker at the margins and leave things largely the same, then we really don't leave freedom for the kind of experimentation that I think turns out to to benefit all of us, uh, whether it's a, a matter of developing new uh, you know, business processes or developing new consumer products or exploring new ways of living together in one, one of one sort or another. I think by leaving more room for experimentation, we really allow a liberal order to do its work. And I think uh, what I'd be hesitant about would be any approach that unduly minimized that scope for experimentation. So, so do you think it's unfair to say that people who target this or that program, again, as you said, it's not that they're wrong or they have a wrong insight or something like that, but m- might that miss the boat a little bit on an overall like systematic insight or like an institutional sort of critique that a market anarchist might apply to both the, the state side of what we have today and also, for instance, the, the, the corporate and business side of what we have today, which we'll get more into that in a sec, but, but at a high yeah. level, is that fair to say, do you think? I, I do think that's right. And I think... You know, I think what complicates things also often is, you know, there's a dynamic of of intervention that, um, you know, that Mises famously talks about, but uh, he's certainly not the only person, Um, a dynamic that works like this, right, that uh, there's a, a kind of clumsy political uh, intervention uh, into people's uh, voluntary interactions uh, that then leads to some further complication. And so then we need uh, an additional intervention, some new regulation, say, to deal with this problem that's been created by the first intervention, and so on and so on and so on. And I think by missing that cascading dynamic and the the way in which different uh, layers of of intervention presuppose and depend on others, um, you know, we run into a problem. And I I don't profess to have uh, a good solution to this at the 40,000 foot level. I think there's a lot of uh, conversation that has to happen about the specifics. But we run into a problem that I think works like this, that... um, 
you know, a certain kind of intervention takes place. Another kind of intervention then is undertaken to deal with a problem created by the first sort uh, of intervention. And then somebody uh, trying to be helpful says, well, let's get rid of intervention number two without also saying, let's get rid of intervention number one. And then you end up with a situation in which the problem that's been created, which is a real problem brought about by intervention, uh, persists and uh, perhaps makes things worse. And so I think you have to recognize, again, the systemic or dialectical interrelationship among uh, uh, different kinds of interventions uh, if you want to respond to them effectively. Otherwise, you really do run the risk of uh, kind of solidifying or sedimenting existing interventions uh, uh, of a certain sort and, uh, you know, perhaps, again, uh, just removing ones that uh, are more visible and that perhaps, uh, you know, turn out to minimize the bad effects of their, not minimize, but to reduce the bad effects of the earlier interventions. Um, and so if you don't get rid of the whole package and you don't understand the relationship among the items in the package, then uh, I think you, uh, you know, you can run the risk of leaving the, uh, the most severe interventions in place untouched. Right. Right. It makes sense. And, and shifting gears to, to something else now. now. Now, naturally, like when we talk about distorting markets or the current arrangements and the problems with the current, uh, you know, systems and challenges to freedom and flourishing and so on, of course, a lot of conversations will always go back to the state and state intervention, uh, especially within, you know, the North American libertarianism, uh, you know, circles and critiques. But market anarchists and left libertarians also tend to, as we were touching on before in our first half of the conversation, discuss social and class dynamics and corporate power in our current system as well. And, you know, I, I want to turn to your thoughts on, on corporate power overall and the current corporate arrangements and ask you, essentially, is it fair to say that, you know, p- part of the market anarchist view is that the modern corporate system, I think Pete Batke actually says something I agree with, he called it like neo-mercantilism is really what we have now, which I thought was pretty great. Um, you know, and those kind of arrangements, do they also, in that sector, embody the kind of problematic class and social relations that you think a radical liberal should have a problem with, you know, whether we're talking about bosses or a hierarchy or whatever else? Yeah, I, so I think that's right. Uh, so P- Pete's phrase is great. Three cheers for the, three cheers for that. The, the reference to neo mercantilism, I think, is uh, uh, is very apt and uh, definitely enables us to capture uh, the distinction between I think what uh, as uh, as real liberals we'd like to affirm and what we've actually got now. Um, so one thing i think we might want to say probably other things uh, worth saying but one thing we might want to say is that when these neo-mercantilist uh, arrangements persist one what they do is to insulate um uh, the wealthy and well connected from the pressures of competition right and uh, so if we think about this uh uh, in a narrowly business-focused context, I mean, there's obviously the uh, um, uh, you know the kind of stuff that Butler Schaefer, for instance, talks about in his great book *In Restraint of Trade*, which looks at the way in which uh, uh, there is, to use the the subtitle of his book, a business campaign against competition uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, because established players. Uh, in a variety of industries, didn't like the idea that they could be subjected to competitive pressures. Uh, And uh, so they were able uh, to sell to the public the idea that uh, what was needed was a protection against the uh, uh, 
um, you know, rambunctious, uh, uh, unpredictable dynamics of a market economy and instead, uh, you know, established players who were, of course, treated as and maybe thought of themselves as uh, defenders of the status quo and the public uh, uh, as uh, corporate stewards, uh, they could be protected and uh, uh, protected against the ravages of, of competition. So, uh, if we think about that dynamic that I think uh, Butler Butler talks about, and Butler's here just building on and really picking up from uh, Gabriel Kalko's earlier book, The Triumph of Conservatism, which looks at similar dynamics in the latter part of the 19th century through the beginning of the 20th, um, what, we ha- what we're observing here is that established players want to be protected against the effects of competition. Uh, And when they are protected against the effects of competition, they can kind of go about their business however they like. Uh, And that means that we might think, and I understand that there are are, uh, uh, issues that somebody might raise here, uh, and we can, you know, we can certainly explore this from other angles, but it seems to me that so if we, if we think about the Misesian and Hayekian critiques of central planning, right? The idea that, uh, um, you know, so for Hayek, that owner that, that, that information is distributed throughout a, a society in a way that kind of resists uh, aggregation in any central place. Uh, and for Mises, the idea that uh, if we don't have a market in capital goods, uh, we really can't uh, set prices in a, uh, in a rational way. And so we do have to therefore have, uh, uh, have ownership, have private ownership of capital. If we think about those kinds of uh, critiques of, of a hierarchically organized, centrally planned economy, those critiques turn out to be painfully relevant um, to many organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, there, and it's pretty clear that the same thing that's wrong with an attempt to, uh, you know, determine uh, grain production in the Ukraine, if you're the, you know, Soviet central planner in, you know, 1952, the same thing uh, can be a problem for at any rate, a sufficiently large corporation. And let's let's recognize that there's no, uh, you know, kind of number I can write on a, on a whiteboard that'll tell us just what that size is. But the point is, at some point, we're going to reach uh, a situation in which information is dispersed throughout an organization and can't realistically be aggregated and made accessible to those at the top of the organization. And yet those at the top of the organization still uh, uh, like having uh, the, the large complex structure that they inhabit with the kind of power and status that, uh, that they enjoy there and, and so forth. Um, and so I think that what we what we see then is an attempt to maintain a state of affairs that really couldn't survive competitive pressure, I think, 
uh, because of those informational deficits the uh, uh, and the other problems with central planning that are in place there. There are incentive problems that are at issue. And, and really, ultimately, uh, it's more complicated to talk about here. But I think the, the idea that, uh, you know, Mises talks about uh, with regard to uh, to states, again, I think applies here that uh, there's a central, a single owner rather than various owners who can uh, uh, operate a, a market and capital goods uh, with respect to whatever it is that a given corporation is, is concerned with. Uh, so we have this kind of, uh, of arrangement that is inherently inefficient, but in a range of ways, stay, uh, you know, well-connected businesses can be protected against uh, the effects of competition there. So what I want to say, the left libertarian point I want to say is twofold. First of all, with respect to hierarchies, I think there's an inherent inefficiency in at least certain kinds of hierarchies. Again, there may be some that, you know, people would choose voluntarily that really are efficient, but I think there's clearly a level of inefficiency that's associated with hierarchy that, uh, you know, people are able to escape. Um, The other thing is, I think there's also a kind of insulation that can happen against bad choices in other areas. So if... Um, you know, I operate my brokerage firm, uh, let's say, on the view that, you know, mainly uh, this is, you know, I think certainly less true now, but it might have been true in 1920, right? It's, you know, mainly, um, you know, other white guys I went to Harvard with are the people I want to hire for my brokerage firm on Wall Street. Um you know, if I'm protected in various ways against uh, against uh, competition, uh, I can get away with doing that, right? So, you know, Gary Becker famously pointed out in his uh, book, The Economics of Discrimination, that irrational bigotry undercuts itself, right? People, if, if people really uh, make choices about who to hire or who to do business with on the basis of irrational beliefs about, uh, you know, racial superiority or gender superiority or whatever, then those who don't embrace those beliefs are going to outcompete them. But if you've got various sorts of protections against the effects of competition, then you can escape that competitive pressure. So uh, as a left libertarian, I want to emphasize both of those things, that, that the hierarchies themselves, I think, uh, despite their inefficiencies, can be uh, maintained in the face of competitive pressure when anti-competitive policies are enacted. And the same thing, I think, also protects um, you know, various sorts of exclusionary policies uh, from uh, the uh, from being undermined by competitive pressure. Right, and and that's not that's all that, and also to add that that you know that's also notwithstanding the fact that the uh, a corporation itself, like legally, is ultimately d- designed to sort of suppress market forces too. When we talk about limited sure. liability and the privilege that they have through intellectual property and that, and that kind of thing, I mean, you put all that together, Absolutely. I think. Yeah. Well, and I think that's actually at the point where we'll move to our formal wrap-up now. So, so, Gary, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me officially ask you now as our final wrap-up question. We've talked about a lot. If we can bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of our, our, our question and theme today, let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether markets need capitalism and all the other great stuff we talked about when it came to left libertarianism and your thoughts? In other words, if you wanted someone to come away from all this you know, if anything, with one or two or just a few takeaways, what would those be? Um, I guess I think it would be this. The liberal tradition is exciting. People ought to embrace liberal ideas uh, because those ideas can point us toward um, 
a society we all ought to want to live in. That's really, I think, the, the, the bottom line for me. Fair enough. I think we'll leave it there. Gary Shardia, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. A pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.